Good morning, everyone. It's wonderful to see you all. Thank you for being here. And it is so, so good that we are here. And I uh, just want to say thank you to the worship team for that worship this morning. Um, oh, dear. <laughs> but um, I think uh, it's dangerous to get to prep, to preach, and share the word with God's people because you, um, you come extra vulnerable to a Sunday morning and then you um, get to worship Jesus like that. And you, no, no. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but um, I just, I suppose it's like a funny prayer to pray after Dave's already prayed. But I, my prayer this morning is for strength to be able to discharge fully what I feel God has given me to share with you this morning. And so we've been looking, and please just ignore, dies not in die trana. You know what I'm saying? But um, I, uh, we've been in this series of the goodness of God, and uh, it's been beautiful, and I, I absolutely love it. And I just, I wrote down here, uh, and what hearts those are, the goodness of God, what heart that is of His character. It's like, to imagine it as a mountain, it's a mountain that you can never get to the end of, you can never summit it fully. It's boundless, as many of His characteristics are. And the goodness of God is without end, and we get to explore it and look actively for it every day of our lives. And Psalm 23, which many of us will know, it says that His goodness and his loving kindness or his goodness and his mercy pursue us, chase us, follow after us all the days of our lives. And that's a profound thing to think over and meditate on, that actually there's something of God's character, his goodness that he mentions particularly for us. It says it's chasing after you. It's how he chooses to define himself. He says God is good in his word again and again and again and again. And so over the last couple of weeks, it's been such a privilege to look at that and the lofty heights of God's goodness. And um, God's goodness is sometimes, we see glimpses of it in our lives, don't we? We see sometimes it's obvious. Like I remember I was standing over here. Um, it was the 15th of June, four and a half years ago. And Caitlin walked down the, oh no, Caitlin, <laughs> on the aisle. And uh, but for me, it was a God, you're so good moment. And it's, uh, it was obvious was vivid, it was clear. But sometimes the goodness of God is a little bit more hidden. It's a little bit more surprising. It's when you walk in through your garden and you see the birds. You take a moment and you stop and you see the birds fly by and you hear the wind rustling in the giant gum trees and you see the flashes of butterfly wings as they go from flower to flower and you just think, God, you're so good. You're so good. There are these glimpses that we get to see. Um, it's, uh, I'll never forget um, Sarah McIntosh speaking on the goodness of God at youth once, and she got a honey bottle and put a do dollop of honey on everyone's finger and, and said to them, now taste it. Put it in your mouth and taste it. And then Psalm 34, verses 8, says this. It says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Bless you, my darling. <laughs> Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Taste and see. Taste and see this active thing. We were reminded by Chris count your blessings. Actively seek them out. God's word is clear. God is good. It is put plainly. It is put simply. It's meant to be, I believe, accessible at all times. I think it's why he repeats himself again and again throughout the word, saying, I am good. I am good. I am good. And he demonstrates and shows his goodness and sometimes beautifully hidden and sometimes big, obvious ways. And I feel like the goodness of God is a little bit like that fruit bowl in your house. It's in the middle of the kitchen where it's accessible for everyone. It's not supposed to be hard fruit to get. You know what I'm saying? And actually, I think that's something of what the goodness of God for us in the Word is, is that it's that fruit bowl accessible to everyone. It's conspicuous and it's readily available. But this morning, what about if the goodness of God doesn't seem near? 
to you and to me? What about if there's pain and there's grief and there's tragedy and there's trauma? What if God doesn't seem near to us? What if you find yourself in the valley of life instead of its heights, in the lonely parts of life instead of the warm embrace of community, in the middle of hard and hurting? And what if your heart knows that God is good, but life certainly doesn't look it, and it's very hard for those truths to translate into soul-knowing and soul-feeling? What do we do then? And I Life is hard. <laughs> it's really hard. It seems very um, cheap to say that here at the front. And I was uh, mentioning to Francois and Ingrid uh, as we drove back from the elders' time yesterday, I feel like this morning we are venturing into very sacred ground, very a sacred space together, friends. Um, and, and so I, I do come as humbly as I can and sharing the word with you this morning because it is sacred ground where we go now. Life is hard and it's gutsy and it's difficult and sometimes it is outright heartbreaking. And so... A disclaimer here, this morning probably will be a bit tender and a bit uncomfortable, but I believe that God wants to walk with us into today and with us into this idea of what do we do? What about those who are struggling this morning, who are suffering trial and difficulty and grief, and it seems like God's goodness is so far away from them? And uh, Matthew 12 verses 20 shows something of God's character, or something of who our God is. It says this, a bruised reed, he will not break. A smoldering work he will not snuff out till he has brought justice through to victory. I just feel this morning, as Nick asked me to preach on the goodness of God, this um, just jumped to mind straight away that that's our God. He doesn't put out the smoldering work. He doesn't break the bruised reed. He is so sensitive and so mindful of each and every single one of us. He is so good. He is so good. And so this morning, friends, we are going to look at the art of lamenting in the context of the goodness of God. We're going to look at what about when life does not feel good, but we know that God is. How do we do that? So let's have a look, shall we? Are you guys good? Are you ready? Excellent. I'm so glad. So lamenting is something quite difficult to prepare for. (laughs) I'm not going to lie to you. There's not that much out there, strangely enough. It's in the scriptures. It's there, and it's uncomfortable, actually, in this Western proper Put together society that we find ourselves in. It's a, it's a culture where people don't speak about lamenting enough. They don't speak about the, what about the disconnect where what we see around us doesn't match what we know to be true about the character of God, you know? But then, and so what do we do with a grief-laden soul, a heart that is anguished and mourning because the promises of God don't seem to line up with the realities of experience? And I believe God graciously invites us in that place, friends, to lament. I think that's something that we are given as a gift from him. And we don't do lamenting or suffering really very well as Christians. It's almost as if we don't expect to suffer, as if we don't expect to face difficulty. We don't lament often, and we often don't quite know what to do with trauma and grief or hopelessness. And so I do think there's value in telling stories. And so I'd love to share a bit of a story with you. Um, I remember a drive home quite vividly as I remember a day where Kate walked down the aisle. I remember it was in July a year ago, and Kate and I were driving back from the fertility clinic in Namplanga, and we had been through a number of years of trying, and we had, um, we had tried so hard. And you'd think with two biology teachers who have a very good understanding of all the bits and pieces involved, that we tried, and we ended up at this fertility clinic after many tests and blood tests and things, and we um, sat down eventually with the doctor, and the doctor said to us, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Slope, so you guys cannot have children. You, yes, in terms of me, naturally, it's not going to happen. The problem lay with me. 
and uh, we got into the car. Well, what do you do, you know, and uh, hearing news like that? And you get in your car, and we start to drive back to school because we'd taken a half day. And we drove back towards our work and our jobs, and I remember us weeping in the car. And um, it was a profound moment for me because um, my darling wife didn't once blame. She didn't once accuse. And um, I think sometimes in those places and spaces where you get news like that, you almost ask the question, and we're going to talk about asking questions this morning. Why, oh Lord? Why, oh Lord? You know, surely this happens to others, you know, and not to us. But um, there we were in the car, and then we started a journey of trying to remain it as best as we could. And we, uh, there was injections and pills and a, a regime that I had to follow and all of those things. And um, I don't stand here with amazing news now saying, hey, I'm expecting to be a dad. Not yet. Not yet. But um, life then threw a whole bunch of extra curveballs our way from all sorts of things, from external family, volatile situations, financial burdens we never expected we have to carry, betrayal from people close to us, all sorts of things. You know, life, as I'm sure many of you could stand up here and share your story, your testimony actually of life and how it's suffering sometimes and it's hard and it's difficult. And, uh, and we started to ask questions in the late watches of the night and sometimes on the blazing sun of the day. <laughs> we started to say something, God, have we done something wrong? Have we done something wrong, Jesus? Have, will this ever relent? Will there ever be a month where the miracle will be clear? Will we ever see it in our lifetime? You know, and we start to ask those questions. And friends, there's a grief that you can carry. There's a mourning for the life that you thought would be. You know, the reality is that like we have this thought of what life could and should be in our minds. And I, I remember there was a, a lady who used to be at this church a long time ago, Jody Ray. Does anyone remember her? And uh, she wrote a poem once, and the poem was called, I Found My Reservoir of Tears Today. And uh, I, I think for us, we found a reservoir of tears that we didn't know we had. But um, we're going to talk about lamenting this morning, because I think it's not something God ever wants us to shy away from. I think He wants us to be able to lament in the context and the, and the banner of His goodness. And so let's do it this morning. So, mourning for the life that you thought that there would be, sometimes an anger and a frustration that you don't know where to direct it, a sorrow that you can't shake, and you know it's tucked away in the back corner of your life, and you know that it hasn't been dealt with, it's, it's not gone, but it's, it's there, and you just, every once in a while, it moves to the front, and you can see it. Every once in a while, you have to deal with it again and push it backwards, it seems, but I don't think that's the life that God calls us to. I think God calls us to this practice of lament. And so the goal here, friends, as we share a little bit of our story and then look at the scriptures, it's not that we can compare. Because Kate and I, we were even talking last night, we are so aware that our story does not hold a candle to what some of you have gone through and what you're going through right now. And we, it gives such perspective, humble perspective. It's actually, God, we, um, we, we will uh, lament for our own lives and then, Lord, we will lament for others. Because, oh my word, Lord, the, the, we need your mercy and your grace in this moment. So, <laughs> we struggle with the reality of evil in the world, and it is not enjoyable, and it seems to fly in the face of what we think it means that God is good. And that's a key thing I'd like to start with this morning. We as people has, have very specific views of what it means that God is good. And we have a picture of what it means that God is good to us. And if we're honest, I think there's a small part of us that thinks that God's job, His task in life is to keep us comfortable. And, and when that doesn't happen, we get quite thrown by it. We come to believe the falsehood that suffering should not be a part of our lives, and that's the problem because it is. <laughs> that's the problem. So, lament. Let's look into it more closely. Lament is different than crying. <laughs> lament is a form of prayer, theologians say. 
It's a form of prayer that we're going to look at. It's more than just an expression of sorrow or a venting of emotion. Lament talks to God about pain. How beautiful is that? Lament talks to God about pain, and it has a unique purpose. Lament's purpose at the end of the day is trust. That's what it's there for, that actually through the process of lamenting and lamenting what we see and what we experience and what we know, the fruits at the end that God is hoping to bring out of us is trust in him and his character and his ways. It's a divinely given invitation to pour out our fears and our frustrations and our sorrows for the purpose of helping us renew our confidence in God. And there's this book called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. And it's one of the few books I could find actually on lamenting, (laughs) strangely enough. And the author defines lament as this. He says, it's a prayer of pain that leads to trust. But lament, it's the wailing of the heart before a God who hears, a God who listens, and a God who responds to our cries. That's what lament is. It's, it's entirely based on the fact that God hears and listens and responds. There's about 65 psalms that theologians identify that are psalms of lament. <laughs> they are psalms of crying out to God. Psalm 3, Psalm 13, Psalm 22, Psalm 42, Psalm 44, Psalm 60, and just a few of them. Where these psalms, the authors cry out to God, and that should tell us something. Lament is a port- an, an important part of the human experience that God invites us into. So let's have a look at it there. Um, as much as you can find, biblical scholars agree that there's sort of four bits to a good lament, <laughs> to kind of put it out there for us. The first is to turn. The second is to ask. Some say to complain. The third say to wait. And lastly, to trust. Turn, ask, wait, trust. Four things. And we're going to use Psalm 13 as we go through that just to explore what those could actually be. But turn, the first point, who do we turn to when life is hard? Who do we turn to when tragedy strikes? Who do we turn to when you get that news or when that thing happens? We turn to the sovereign Lord. We turn to the one who is the source of our help, the one who is, we believe is in control, the source of healing and mercy and goodness and breakthrough. We turn to God. And so the question I probably would ask of you and I to think through is, where do you turn? Where do you turn when things go, get bad? Where, what is your first port of call? Do you uh, run to friends or to family, to your spouse, maybe to your pastor, to your therapist? Where do you turn when things get hard? Christians, our first Port of call is to turn to God. And uh, Psalm 121 gives us a little bit of framework for that. It says, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. The Jews would understand that that word or that phrase, the makers of heaven and earth, means he who made everything. Everything. I lift my eyes. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. Hebrews 4 verses 16 is another. It says, so then with confidence, let us, sorry, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. We get to turn to the throne of grace and approach him who sits on it with confidence. Often a lament begins in an address to God. How long, O Lord, that's what Psalm 13 verses 1 starts off with. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? That's what the psalmist writes. I think they're going to start coming on behind me as well. How long, O Lord, you address it to God. Psalm 12 verses 1 says, save, O Lord. Psalm 10 verses 1 says, why, O Lord? Psalm 28 verses 1 says, to you, O Lord, I call. So first, speak to God, turn, 
and speak to him. Lamentation is directed towards God. Call on him by name. Lord, Father, my God, my help, my defender. And you approach that throne boldly and you appeal to your heavenly Father through Christ. Take advantage of that. We turn. The second one is we ask. Or some say complain, but I prefer ask. (laughs) Ask. Give voice to the emotion, to the brokenheartedness and the mourning. State what you see and how it doesn't match the goodness of God that you know. The book of Lamentations, if you know it in your Bibles in the Old Testament, the book of Lamentations does just that. It's a group of poems and poetic statements that give us both picture and language to the lament to God. And we see the prophet Jeremiah as he looks and considers Jerusalem crushed by actually God's judgment. Uh, Judah destroyed by it. He knows that the people are no longer there because many have been died. Many, uh, many have died. Well, many have died. Many have gone into slavery. That's an absolute picture of destruction. And he laments and laments and laments. He laments at the lives lost and the heartache. And all of that is memorialized in a book of the Bible for us. In Psalm 13, verses 2, he says, How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? There's this questioning of God. How long, Lord? How long? We know what it is to be there. We've asked those questions ourselves. More than a sinful rehearsing of our anger, biblical lament humbly and honestly identifies the pain, the questions, and the frustrations raging in our souls. Psalm 3 says, O Lord, how many are my foes? Psalm 42 says, My tears and my food, sorry, my tears have been my food day and night. Psalm 44 says, Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Amazing, hey, this, this engagement with God. Yes, the Lord knows. The Lord knows our deepest and innermost thoughts, friends. Psalm 94 verses 11 tells us that. The Lord knows. But make it a point to tell him what you are feeling. Make it a point. I I read one person making a Bible study on this, and he said, how angry are you about the pain you are experiencing? How frustrated are you that he seems to be silent? How deeply are you questioning his presence? Tell him he can handle it. He is the Lord who makes heaven and earth. He is good for it. He's, he's, he's reliable, he's strong, his shoulders are so broad. Psalm 10 verses 1 says, Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? He asks of the Lord. Psalm 13 verses 1, we've already seen, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Psalm 42 verses 3, My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? You know, the unbelievers look and they say, Well, where's your God? You're this Christian, you're a, you know, and, and shame. They, they say, Where's your God? The psalmist never once minced their words, rather they exposed the feelings and anguish their hearts had before the one who already knew what they felt. They practiced humble vulnerability. Point number three, we wait. We wait. In Lamentations 3, a little bit on from a passage we're going to look at just now, there's this part where it talks about that the young man could sit on the ground in the dirt and wait. And I, I just, I've been so caught by that picture. I heard a preach on it. And I thought, I've never thought of that. Actually, we often want to run ahead and skip ahead from the feeling and the things. You know, just get over it, you know, just ignore it. But there's this picture in Lamentations of sit in the dirt and feel it. Wait. And uh, we admit when we wait, we start doing something that theologians call active patience. <laughs> I really like that term, active patience, that in that time, we admit we have no power to change things. We are, um, one of the things that we said on that first day when we heard the news was we said we are primarily positioned for a miracle because there is nothing we can do. 
There's nothing that we can do. We're primarily positioned for Him. And so um, we admit that we cannot change any of our circumstances. And in our waiting, we give God space to answer for Him to speak His truth into the situation. Sometimes we can get so caught up with the things and the things we feel and almost be blinded by pain and blinded by suffering, not able to see past it. But, but God gives us the opportunity and calls us to wait with Him so that He can speak. Psalm 13, verses 3 to 4 says, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. You know, there's a waiting, there's a God, like you have to act. If you don't, there's nothing. I have no hope. There's nothing I can do. A sorrow that does not let up, friends, can, be, it can lead to a deadly silence and a despair. Uh, I think of um, despair. I think there is no hope. That's what a despairing heart says. Or it can lead to denial. Everything's fine. We're fine. We're all good. But lament invites us to dare to hope in God's promises as we ask for his help. Psalm 10 verses 12 says, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted. Psalm 28 verses 2 says, Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help. Psalm 42 verses 5 says, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. These two authors, uh, Timothy Lane and Paul Tripp, they write this book called um, How People Change. And there's this amazing quote that they throw out. And I actually thought so much of, of Francois and something that you always share with us, Francois. And they say this, everything God does and everything God calls us to only makes sense from the perspective of eternity. Everything God does and everything God calls us to only makes sense from the perspective of eternity. And I think God calls us to wait when we lament so that we can get that perspective. Otherwise, we can not see it for what it is. God calls us to wait. Point number four, trust. Trust. The goal of lamenting, <laughs> the, the, the goal of it all, the, the turning, the asking, the waiting, the goal, the fruit is trust. Trust in the character of God. And, and, and to be honest, friends, it's all we have. It's all we have at the end is to trust Him. It's a trust that is informed by the character and truth of our God as we wait and we pitch our tent in the land of hope. We trust God is who he says he is. We trust that he is God and we trust that he will be good and that he will do good and what is right in his sight and what is right in his timing and that he will work justice and mercy in ways that we cannot fathom. We need to wait for that perspective because it won't make sense. It won't make sense. So choose to trust Choose to trust. That's the destination of all of our laments. That is the, where all the roads are leading. It's to this thing of trusting God. And Psalm 13, verses five to six, he says, but I have trusted your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. More than the stages of grief, this prayer language that we learn moves us to remove, uh, to, to renew, sorry, our commitments and trust in God as we navigate the brokenness of this world. Psalm 10 verses 17 says, O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted, and you will strengthen their heart. Psalm 28 verses 7 says, The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts, and I am helped. Psalm 42 verses 8, By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me. And uh, for, for me, there are two scriptures that God gave me. One, when I was a young teenager in Romans 
in there, this Romans 24, it talks about Abraham, funnily enough. I, was, I never thought I would relate to Abraham on something like this, but here we are. And, um, and it says, no distrust made him waver concerning the promises of God, but he grew strong in his faith, giving glory to God, fully convinced that God is able to do what he has promised. And I've thought about that scripture all the way since my teenage years. It's been a profound anchor for my soul. And uh, last year in July, when we obviously heard the news and there was all this going on, I thought God give me a line from Isaiah, just one line, and I was, sing, O barren one. Sing, O barren one. And, um, and it's me. <laughs> I just thought, oh God, <laughs> that's all I have. It's the word that I'll build my life on and the solid ground I will stand on. And so sing, O barren one. And I almost, to us here, what's the word that God's given you? What's the anchor that he's given for your soul? For me, it's to sing. To sing, O barren one, because actually he is good, and he's worthy of a song, all the songs, every song, and, uh, and it's, it's something that's carried me through. Um, a man named Mark, I think it's Vrugop, or Vrugop, I hope that's not a bad Afrikaans, but I wasn't sure, but uh, a man named Mark Vrugop, we'll just say, he writes this book, and he says this beautiful quote, he says, lament is the prayer language for God's people as they live in a world marred by sin. It is how we talk to God about our sorrows as we renew our hope in his sovereign care. To cry is human. He talks about how it's the first thing we do when we come into the world. You cry. <laughs> he says, to cry is human, but to lament is Christian. This is an amazing thing. Like, to cry is human, but to lament is something that believers do. Lament is a form of praise, some theologians say, because it is acknowledgement of the sovereignty of God and submission to his power. It's a form of praise, and it's prayer with the intent of drawing close to God in times of great suffering and pain, and ultimately it is a wonderful gift for God's people because it, I love this word, it presupposes or it is based on the fact that there is a relationship with God and it depends on that relationship. Only those who know God can approach God in a covenantal relationship. Only those are able to lament because it's pleading with God to act in accordance with his character and his promises to us. The mere fact that we are able to approach God in lament is a sign of intimacy and it is a sign of hope. Amazing thing, isn't it? This practice of lament. So lament is not only just um, expressing our true anguish and pain to our sovereign king, but it's finding hope and comfort in the truths of his faithful character and his promises. Our God is good. Our God is good. It is the bedrock that we build our lives on. Circumstances don't determine the goodness of God. His character does, and we build on that. <laughs> Lament is seeing God entering into our pain. It's incarnate with us in our trials, and it meets us in his immutable character. He doesn't change God is, is good where the life is, or life isn't, we've said it, but he meets us in our need. He meets us in our pain. Lament helps us acknowledge our suffering to not pretend or deny our plight, but then it casts our eyes beyond our pain to the eternal hope. It, it's an incredible thing. God, would you fill your people with eternal hope, with a hope that looks at life and, and is not shaken or moved, but instead just says, Lord, we will lament, but that lament finds its, its, its final position in trust, and we will trust you, God. Paul says the same thing to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4 verses 17. He says, this light and momentary affliction, this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And we often focus on the light and momentary affliction 
we look at that and say, oh, yeah, that's amazing. God calls that light and momentary affliction. But I think the emphasis is actually on the, 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 the treasure, the eternal weight of glory. That's, that's where the, that's the perspective. That's the eternal hope that actually God is calling his people to see and to know. And so lament calls us to that. It's encouragement through eternal perspective. Once we are led by our shepherd through the dark valley of doubt, fear, and anguish, then we might lift our eyes to the Christ and his eternal purposes and find help and hope. Lament is a glorious gift for God's people. So I've got some final thoughts and then some practical pieces, and then we'll be done. The first thought is that lament is proof of a relationship. It's proof. Israel lamented to God because they had covenantal relationship with him, and God is faithful to his covenant. They didn't just like make songs and things to try to catch the attention of a distant deity. They, um, they had a covenantal relationship with Yahweh, their God. He says, I will be their God, and they will be my people. And he causes people, and they were asking, they, they know he causes people, his children, his kids, his people, and, and they were asking their father to act. Um, when something goes wrong at our house, it <laughs> um, doesn't matter what time of the day or night or whether it's a weekday or a weekend, um, I call my dad. <laughs> it's, it's proof of our relationship. Um, I, I just, it doesn't matter. It's just, it's assumed. It's because I know him and he knows me. And there's this understanding that actually I can call on him and ask my dad for help. And, and there's lots of people I could call on. You know, there's an incredible bunch of amazingly talented DIYers in this church. But I call my dad because he's the one that I have relationship with. Lament is calling on your dad because he's the one that you have relationship with. It's proof of it. Um, this man called Dr. Russell Moore shares in his book um, quite a sad story. He was busy trying to adopt a child from Russia, and uh, they were in the process of adoption. They visited the adoption house, the orphanage, and there was silence in the nursery. He says, the silence in the nursery was eerie. The babies in the cribs never cried, not because they never needed anything, but because they'd learned that no one cared enough to answer Children who are confident of the love of a caregiver cry. For the Christian, our lament, when taken to our Father in heaven, is proof of our relationship with God and our connection with the great caregiver. The second point, lament is a prayer for God to act. (laughs) In the Bible, lament is not just this outlet for frustration and venting. It's um, actually amazing. About 79 times the word shema, I hope I'm saying it right, shema, which means to hear. Hear, O Lord. You know, the people crying out to God saying, hear us. Hear our, uh, our cry and then act, O God. The psalmist appeals to God's character and covenant and asks for his attention and action. It's a prayer for God to act. Don't stop praying for God to act. Thirdly, lament is a participation in the pain of others. It's a, a participation in the pain of others. You begin to realize, friends, as you look at all of these psalms, my apologies, Paul is not in Toronto, my friends. Um, you begin to notice as you start to pray through the psalms of lament, that um, sometimes it doesn't seem like it's for you. Like, I'm not surrounded by enemies on every side, but there are Christians in the world who are. There are Christians in your community who are. You might not know what it is to have the tears as your food day and night, but there are people in your world who do. And so lamenting and learning the language and learning to lament properly allows us to participate in the suffering of others and in their pain. Maybe you're not being pursued by enemies, but what about the Christians in Syria? What about the person struggling with a cancer diagnosis? Prayer, lamenting prayer, psalm prayers, participation in the prayer life of not just your own life, but the 
the prayer life of your church and the prayer life of the church global. It's an amazing thing. It's not only for, for the suffering, the, 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 those who lament are not just those who suffer, but it's for solidarity with those who suffer. We love our neighbor when we allow their experience of pain to become the substance of our prayer. Amazing to think that actually God could open and break our heart for people in such a way we pray with all the more vigor and all the more um, energy to say, oh God, would you move? Oh God, would you hear? It's an amazing thing. That eternal perspective, friends, is so very important. Do we see beyond the pain of this life to what is to come? When every tear is wiped away, the Bible says, when death is swallowed up in victory, when heaven and earth are made new and joined as one, when the saints rise again in glorious bodies, when we will sing at last that great hallelujah, can you see it? Do you see it? That's part of lament leads us to that place where you see and you trust. A few more things. Suffering never exceeds the limitations that God places on it. Suffering never exceeds the limitations that God places on it. Um, I was reading this journal of a lady who had quite a wild life in terms of just pain and suffering and brokenness. And uh, I'll share something more of what she said later, but she says this. She says, I often lament at God's choice of where the boundary lines lay. (laughs) I really thought that was quite honest. She's like, I lament over the choice, God's choice of where the boundary lines lay. He knows my limitations and needs though. And he has government over my suffering and he meets me in the midst of them. That was a profound thing. There's a submission and a surrender to the sovereignty of God because we know he is good, and we know that he's Lord. He is God, and we are not. That lady's name is Donna. I think it's Bucha or Bucha. Donna Bucha, she worked in Albania. She was a missionary along with her husband. Um, they saw massive suffering and brokenness in their lives, and all sorts of things happened to their children as well. It was, it's a whole story, which I can't tell now, but it gives such validity to what she says. She says this. Uh, she wrote in her journal, four things that suffering cannot do. And she got this from 2 Corinthians 4, verses 8 and 9. And that passage says, We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. And she says this, there are four things that uh, we should fortify our hearts, things that suffering cannot do. She says, suffering, though pressed and troubled on every side, suffering cannot crush you. Though confused or perplexed, suffering cannot push you into despair. Though persecuted, suffering cannot cause God to abandon you. Though brought low or knocked down, suffering cannot destroy you. This lady, Donna Bucher, writing in her journal, um, and, and in the midst of suffering, but she has this hope. It cannot do this, and it cannot do this, and it cannot do this because God's word is sure. It's an amazing thing. 1 Peter 5 verse 7, it gives a beautiful invitation to all here. It says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you because he cares for you. Psalm 56 verses eight says, you track all of my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. Hope he has a big bottle. (laughs) All my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. That's what it says about God. So what can we learn from this? This man called Walter Brueggemann, I think is how you say his name. He says this, churches should be the most honest places in town. Not necessarily always the happiest, but the most honest. I think that's an incredible invitation. So, bringing this into a close, the book of Habakkuk is an incredible book to read. I would encourage all of you to go have a look at it. 
But um, Habakkuk, after dialoguing with God, lamenting over the state of Israel, the waywardness of God's people, and then God's answer to what his prayer was, was also he's like, God, no, that would be a horrible thing to do. But God answers, and he replies back, and there's this whole engagement. He gets to the end of Habakkuk, in Habakkuk 3, verses 17 to 19, and he says this, fig trees may no longer bloom, or vineyards produce grapes. Olive trees may be fruitless, and harvest time a failure. Sheep pens may be empty, and cattle stores vacant. Essentially, it's dead. It's dead and it's hopeless. He says, that may be, but I will still celebrate because the Lord God saves me. The Lord gives me strength. He makes my feet sure as those of a deer, and he helps me stand on the mountains. I think of that picture of God giving us feet to walk down the treacherous slopes into suffering and sadness and grief, and up and out the other side. He makes our feet sure. Tim Keller a preacher who died fairly recently, describes this account of a man called Alan Gardner. It's from about 1851, I believe, and he was a missionary going to um, preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and his ship, along with the crew, they got shipwrecked on an island, and they subsequently, he and all of those men, died of starvation. There was no food for them on the island. Interestingly, they found his journal, and in the journal, on the last day, the, the last verse that was mentioned was Psalm 34, verses 10 which says, those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. The man who is starving can write that because he has turned and he has asked and he has waited and he has landed in trust. Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And the very last line of his journal beneath the verse is, I am overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. In the journal of this man who then died. So, friends, as we bring this all to a close, uh, the book of Lamentations, as I mentioned earlier, you'll find the facts in uh, 2 Kings 24 and 25 and, your, and Jeremiah 52, but you'll find the feelings and the emotions in the book of Lamentations. And uh, it's wild. It's wild to read just complaining and, and stating and lamenting before God, saying, God, why this? And look at that. It's, it's insane. But then the Lamentations 3, verses 21 to 26 comes along. And Pan, I'd love for you to put that up on the back, please. And it says this, like, and literally in the midst of everything, it says, yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his passions or his mercies, his loving kindness never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, and therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those who hope, whose hope is in him, to, those, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. So why bother with lament? It's because Jesus did it. And he is our ultimate example of all things. And Jesus lamented a, a number of different times. He lamented over Jerusalem in Matthew 23, verses 37 to 38, when he saw the rejection of the Jewish people of his ministry and the coming kingdom. They, they rejected him, and he wept. So Jesus wept over Jerusalem. In Matthew 27, verses 46, as Jesus is dying on the cross, bearing the weight of sin of all of mankind, he, he laments before God, and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quotes from Psalm 22 in that moment. And there's a strange and wonderful no moment with Jesus and a man called Lazarus, where Lazarus, uh, when the news comes that Lazarus is dying, and uh, Jesus starts making his way towards him, but then the news comes that Lazarus is dead. And Jesus tells his disciples, after he says, I'm gonna, he's going to be raised from the dead. You know? 
And, uh, and he gets there, and even though he's about to raise him from the dead, he's stated what he's going to do. Um, he still takes moments to weep over his friend, still takes moments to lament before his father. And I think Jesus gives us such a beautiful demonstration of that. So our ideas about who God is and our understanding about God's character matters when, it come, when we come face to face with our darkest moments in our lives. Theology is important. Who God is to you is of utmost importance. Lament is an honest expression of our pain, but it is also when we draw on our theology to face that pain. Who is God to you? Is God good? Is God good? So some practicals and then we're done. These are quick and simple. Read the lament psalms. Don't skip them out. Might not necessarily be for you right now. It might be. Then embrace them, but embrace them for others too. (laughs) When you're reading the psalm, ask the questions and try to relate Put your own feeling and your own experience and let them flow into that. Secondly, if you know of people who are suffering and are going through a difficult time, wait with them. Wait with them. Um, just a story. I um, just wanted to honor you, Nick, because uh, when we heard that news on that day, I've told very few people. We told our family and I told my two others and you. And that night, um, Kate and I were completely raw, <laughs> as you can imagine, completely bewildered, not sure what to do sitting in our lounge, and then we see these headlights shining through our window. I thought, what's going on? You know, it's like half past seven at night or something like that, and it was Nick in our driveway, and he just came to be with us, just came to wait with us, as we felt. It didn't come with pleasantries and um, things like, this is how it's going to be fixed. It's not necessary. It wasn't necessary. He just came to show that he loved us, just came to wait with us, and I want to encourage you, friends, to wait with others. Lament with them. Sit down in the dirt and, 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 and lament with them and feel with them and cry with them and pray with them and call out to God. And then you don't have to get them somewhere. That's God's job. <laughs> you get to just be with them and lament with them. So pray with them, both in their presence and outside of it. Lament with them. If you are struggling, go, go get counsel. Counsel of a, a trusted, um, mature believer is invaluable. Think of Proverbs where it says, where counselors or advisors are many, victory is assured. And I just think of actually being able to speak with people and, and, and glean from them. And even maybe their trust in God will be something that fans into flame, the dying ember of your own trust as you go through your struggle. Weep with those who weep, Romans 12, verses 15. And uh, this is a strange one, but go to sleep. <laughs> I, um, this is a joke that we have in our house, uh, which is that I read once a little while ago that sleep is one of the greatest declarations of faith that we can do. Because when you sleep, you give up every bit of power to change a situation that you're worried about. And, um, and sometimes, friends, instead of staying up into the late watches of the night, anxiously worrying, sometimes our greatest statement of faith to God saying, we trust you, is to sleep. Say, so, God, I'm going to trust that you'll work while my eyes are closed and my hands are tied, so to speak. And so I've been trying to practice that. Frustrates Kate no end because she loves to process in the late hours of the night and talk. And I'm just like... <laughs> Go to sleep. And lastly, as we finish, um, Charles Spurgeon actually shares a story about South Africa. How cool is that? When I found I was like, woo, <laughs> our land. And Charles Spurgeon says this story. He says, at the south of Africa, the sea was generally so stormy that when the frail barks of the Portuguese went sailing south, they named it the Cape of Storms. But after the Cape had been well-traveled and well-rounded by bolder navigators, they named it the Cape of Good Hope. In your experience, you have had many capes of storms, but you have weathered them all through the help of your God. And now let them become capes of good hope for you. And it's trusting that actually there would be space and room to hope 
even in the midst of all the suffering, stubborn hope as we come to Jesus. And so lamenting points to Jesus, friends, because he is the place where our trust and our hope lands always. He is the guarantee of God's goodness. He is the expression of his love, and he is the ultimate grief bearer, our Jesus. And so to finish, I I thought of this beautiful um, prayer that Jesus prays at the end when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, suffering, seeing the cross as it's coming towards him, and he just says this thing to his father. He says, and now, Lord, glorify your son. And now, Lord, glorify your son. And that's my prayer for us this morning, that all of the bits and pieces and the stories and the things and the feelings and emotions, and now, Lord, glorify your son. We want our eyes to be fixed on somewhere, not on the pain, but on the promise, not on the suffering, but actually on the eternal perspective that Jesus has overcome the grave and that he is good. He is so good. And so bless you, Red Point Church, and may we learn to lament together in Jesus' precious name. Amen.